I want you to turn in your Bibles to the prophet Nahum. The prophet Nahum, Nahum chapter 1. And we're going to go through Nahum chapter 1 this morning. But just for the sake of time, I'm, I'm just going to jump down to Nahum chapter 1 and pick up at the last verse there in Nahum chapter 1 verse 15. I'm going to read Nahum chapter 1 and verse 15. We're going to cover the whole chapter through my message, but just for our readings right now, I want us to focus on verse 15. It fits in everything that we have been focusing on thus far in this service. So Nahum 1 verse 15, this is God's word. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we ask that in these next few moments as we consider your powerful, awesome, and awful word, we ask that you would help us to become reoriented to your truth, to who you are, and that we would turn our eyes away from falsehood, from trusting in princes, from trusting in ourselves, and instead trusting in you and your infallible and errant promises in your word. I pray that you would cause us to turn away from all of our sin and self-focus, and that we would humble ourselves, even as we have done at your, even at your supper, and that we would humble ourselves and seek your face, seek your mercy, seek your grace. Help us now as we are confronted by your epic word, as it confronts ourselves individually, our nation, and our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 400 BC, there was a group of Greek mercenaries led by a cavalry leader named Xenophon. Um, I like Xenophon because he wrote a book on uh, how to train horses, actually. Uh, that's just an aside. But these, these Greek mercenaries had been fighting in southern Iraq. And they had been fighting, and then the, the Persian leader, Persian king that had hired them, he died, he, he was out of the picture, so they had no one to pay them anymore. And so they had to proceed all the way back north, trying to reach the Black Sea. And in 400 B.C., as they're going along, they head north, and they came to what looked like a massive city with high walls and obviously all kinds of structures throughout this massive city, and yet it was deserted. And they asked the few peasants that were kicking around there, the shepherds and the herdsmen, they said, well, what is this place? And who lived there? And the people, the local people said, we don't know. We don't know. We don't, we don't know who lived here. They saw the walls 
They could see the structures, but they didn't know who lived there. It was only 150 years or so since the time of that great city, that great empire, and yet they were forgotten. That forgotten kingdom and that forgotten city, the city was Nineveh, and the kingdom was Assyria. Then in 1817, the unlikely archaeologist, a guy named Austin Layard, he was digging around in this kind of peasant community that was came to be known as Mosul, Iraq. And you'll know that name, Mosul, from even Canadian troops who have been there more recently. Anyways, he, he found the walls. He shoved his stick, stuck his shovel into the dirt, and he found the walls of what had once been walls wide enough to have three chariots on top of them, riding three abreast. And up to that time in 1817, the existence of Nineveh was doubted by many scholars, except, of course, the ones that took the biblical account and assumed it to be true. It had been forgotten until Laird found it in 1817. And as Laird's biographer said, indeed, Laird considered it one of the most remarkable facts of his day that the records of an empire so renowned for its power and civilization were entirely lost. Lost. And so this morning, as we think about the empires of this world, all of the empires that have come and gone, all of the empire. The American Empire, if you will. The global empire. Empires presumed by China. Empires presumed by global elites. All of these can be gone and lost in a moment. Now why does this matter? Why does it matter? Why would the death of a civilization be of any interest to us other than me maybe making some sociopolitical commentary. The reason is because the end of Assyria brought many people, brought them, it brought them comfort. It brought them comfort. And you say, how is that possible? Well, this is comfort of a different kind. Comfort of a different kind, and that is the title of my, my message. Because we all look for comfort today, don't we? We all do. We look for comfort from our anxieties. We look for comfort from our distresses. We look for comfort from persecution. We look for comfort from the agonies of sin. And so, if we can avoid trouble or get deliverance from trouble, that gives us comfort. We we nevertheless have the possibility of a comfort of a different kind. The comfort of judgment upon the wicked and the removal of our bondage. It is comfort of a different kind. Assyria was a cruel empire. And when the cruel empire collapsed, it would have brought this other kind of comfort. God promised 
this comfort. That's the other thing. He promised it. He gave his prophet Nahum to tell about it. And even his name said it. For the name Nahum means comfort. Now Nahum, in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 1, Nahum was given a burden. It says an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. This was his burden, this, this message or this oracle. It was a burden on him. It was then a very short prophecy, but this short prophecy of, of Nahum is the, is the study I want to look at just for three sermons, three chapters, three sermons. And we're going to see this comfort of a different kind. So first, what we're going to see this morning is the fact that evil, cruel empires, they exist. If you didn't need convincing they exist, you're going to find out that they exist. Evil, cruel empires exist. But secondly, we'll have to get very clear about the just judgment of God upon them. Because we can think that evil and cruelty, that anybody who acts in those ways, they somehow get away with it. That is not the case as we see the just judgment of God. And thirdly, we're going to see that the justice of God in punishing the guilty does not mean that there can be no good, no good news. In fact, God promises the good news of the gospel for all who run to him, not to those who run away from him. So what we have just celebrated with the Lord's Supper is a celebration of those who deserve the judgment of God, but instead of running away from him, have run to him for refuge. And that is what we're going to find in the book of Nahum. Now, Nahum's burden is this oracle concerning Nineveh. And when we think of Nineveh, what do we think of? I mean, even if you're just a thin Bible reader, probably you're aware of Nineveh being connected to which book of the Bible? Jonah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's to do with Jonah. And why did Jonah run away and get swallowed by the big fish? Why did he run away? Well, he did not want to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to preach to Nineveh. He didn't want God to be merciful to Nineveh. The, you know, the, the commission that God had given to Jonah was, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it. Why? Because their wickedness has come up before me. So Jonah was tasked to go to Nineveh and say how bad they were and that God was going to bring judgment. Now, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire in Mosul, Iraq today. Uh, when Jonah was commissioned, their empire was small, but they were known for being cruel. Now, the theme of the book of Jonah is God's undeserved mercy towards sinners. And Jonah didn't like that. 
He didn't want God to be merciful to them. He wanted Assyria to be, in today's parlance, to be nuked. He'd drop a bomb on them. Nuke Assyria, God. I don't want to go preach to them because they might receive mercy. That's the theme of Jonah. Jonah didn't want mercy and repentance and revival for Nineveh. But by the time of Nahum, Assyria was a supreme superpower. Their buildings, their art, their literature, their sophistication was staggering. We know that they must have had a short-lived revival. Because Jonah chapter 3 tells us that they in fact did repent and God didn't judge them at that time. And it it showed God's mercy to the undeserving. Now, Jonah didn't like it, but God said in Jonah 4.11, He said, Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? See, God showed mercy to Nineveh. But Nahum... Nahum is addressed to a kingdom that had become wicked and cruel again. Isaiah, Isaiah, that prophet, he had predicted this. He had said both in Isaiah 37 verse 7, but it's also recorded in 2 Kings 19:28, because you, that is that is Nineveh, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. See the hook, putting a hook in someone's nose and dragging them along? That was one of the ways that Assyrians would treat their conquered enemies. You see, the the Assyrians were cruel. And it wasn't just cruel actions. Cruelty was their style. To be cruel was in fashion with the Assyrians. All of the torture that was described by them, it was skillfully crafted into their wall art, into these stone reliefs that they would decorate their walls with. Beautiful skill used to illustrate atrocity. And if there was an original totalitarian regime, Assyria was it. The archaeologist biographer says of Assyria, in effect, quote, the Assyrians developed the world's first colonies, puppet states, and satellites. They introduced other political novelties. Whole populations were deported. Genocide was practiced as an instrument of state policy. Armies were conscripted, popular opinion was suppressed, forced labor was instituted, the cult of personality was developed, unquote. So totalitarianism is nothing new. We can look and see with Hitler's regime and Stalin's regime and see totalitarianism, and yet that is on the rise around the world, not least which, I believe, in our own country. Of course, what happened? What happened when Sennacherib, that Assyrian king, 
And this is all background. What, what happened when he came up to Jerusalem? You might know the story. Hezekiah, the king at Jerusalem, he prayed. And God answered. And we read in 2 Kings 19, verse 35, On that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. Imagine that. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, went home, and lived at Nineveh. Verse 37 of 2 Kings 19, And as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, his two sons struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Esarhaddon was the next king, and then followed by Ashurbanipal, who was after him in Nineveh. What is important to see is that as we look at Nahum, and I'm trying to just set up these three sermons, what we have to see is how the Assyrians gloried in their sophistication at the same time as they gloried in their cruelty. And, and before you look down your nose at these people, think of our own sophistication. And yet, the trail of blood that is in our society, even as we consider abortion, we consider euthanasia, and we consider the culture of death that we have here. What these guys did, though, they would kind of make a style out of it all. I'll read just a a section from the annals of Ashurbanipal. It's just florid in this description. He said, quote, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down from the whole wide earth. It goes on and on. Um, With the bodies of their warriors, I filled the plain like grass. I've got to stop. It's just too much. And I say this not to sensationalize their cruelty, but to set the context for why Nahum, and we're going to read Nahum, under the inspiration of God, he's so vivid and so descriptive in describing the wrath of God. He's doing it for effect. Because the Assyrians, they had this poetic cruelty as their fashion in Nineveh. And so... By contrast, God's prophet speaks poetically of God's wrath, and it is what we might call poetic justice. Consider the wrath of God against such people. Look at chapter 1 there. We read, verse 2, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord, however, look at verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Then he gets into these very stylized descriptions. Verse 3. 
His way is in, is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds or the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. That's what God does in his wrath. And then we're left with a question in verse 6. Who, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. So we have to see, we have to recognize the wrath of God. We have to see the judgment of God. We have to see it properly. Some people are going to read these verses and they're going to think that God has some kind of uncontrollable rage. They might think that he just irrationally flies off the handle. Maybe like you might remember a family member doing. Maybe your dad. But that's not the case. God has a settled opposition to the wicked. It is settled just as he is settled in his special affection for his children. He's not flitting back and forth. He's settled in his opposition to the wicked, and he's settled in his affection for his children. But notice the language there, how God is described. Jealous and avenging God, avenging and wrathful, takes vengeance on his adversaries, keeps wrath for his enemies. Well, of course, this is, Israel knew this. This goes back to Deuteronomy 32, 35, where it says, Vengeance is mine, and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Of course, you might recall that Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32. He quotes it in Romans chapter 12. So God is an avenger. It's not Iron Man. It's not Captain America. Not that kind of an avenger. But he is an avenger. He's an avenger on those who persecute and destroy his people. It's something, I, to bring it up, I, I question even to preach on Nahum because, you know, it's just the kind of thing like it's hardly permissible for us to even talk like this today. Christians don't really want to talk about it. They're like, this isn't going to be uplifting. You know, we're talking about the wrath of God. And yet, if we don't understand the wrath of God, we don't understand the mercy of God. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We just talked about it in Sunday school. That's, this avenging, then, is how we should view the wrath of God. And yet, verse 3, notice the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And so that's where, you know, this comes into keen application to each one of us. Do you recognize your guilt before God? Or are you, you thinking you're not guilty 
Like the, like the Ninevites, we are all guilty as charged. Not whether we feel guilty or not, but because God the Avenger says we are guilty. And yet, God sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins, for our guilt, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3.26 He's still just. He cannot clear the guilty. That's why Jesus was punished at the cross. Because God cannot clear the guilty. But if your sins are not put upon Christ, and you trust Christ as having been punished for your guilt... Then, then you got to stand and take the punishment yourself. You stand guilty. The Puritan Stephen Marshall said of the wrath of God, he said, quote, God's wrath is a calm and quiet appointment of just punishment. It is a calm and quiet appointment of just punishment. Now that's another way of saying God is slow to anger and great in power. The Puritan Marshall also, he said, if a man cannot mourn at hearing about the wrath of God, then they will burn at feeling it. See, this is what this does. And we don't like, we don't like to think about the wrath of God. We don't like to think about bad things. Negative thoughts. Oh, get those negative thoughts. I don't want to think about that. Just give me positives. Power of positive thinking. No. See, you can think of yourself as hearing and feeling the wrath of God being hunted down by it. See, this is people think they can run away from the wrath of God, but you are unable to escape it unless you escape to God. You need God to deliver you from God. But see, then this prophecy is not merely bringing the wrath of God upon sinners. It is also meant, the whole intention is meant, to provide comfort to victims when they see that justice is served. Calvin describes how believers might, might have been feeling prior to this. He says, We are indeed cruelly harassed by our enemies. But who can think that God cares anything for our miseries since He allows them so long to be unavenged? Haven't you felt that way? Why do the wicked prosper? Don't you watch the news and say, why do the wicked prosper? Why does it go on? But Calvin says then, we now more fully understand why Nahum begins in a language so vehement and calls God a jealous God and an avenger. In all of this wrath then, is the question, who can stand before 
his indignation? Of course, the answer is found in the goodness of the gospel. It's the only place. And so we turn to verse 7, and we see this simple four-word statement. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. He knows them. We've all just come through such a hard season, and we're not really even through it. It just keeps going on. All the troubles we've experienced, they've just mounted. All of us have sinned. All of us have been sinned against. But verse 7 reminds us, the Lord is good. And this is like saying, God is light. God is love. The theologian Turretin said, just as vindicatory justice and its adjuncts, hatred, wrath, and sternness, these are from God, are concerned with physical evil and the infliction of punishments, so is goodness and those virtues belonging to it, namely love, grace, and mercy, concerned with the communication of the good in diverse ways. Now that's a theological way of thinking about it, but just the point then being is, what it means is that the Lord is a shelter in the storm with a hearty greeting, the hearty greeting welcoming to you to Himself because He is good. He is not. God is not like the witch lurking in the candy house waiting to trap Hansel and Gretel. He is not going to try to deceive you and give you the rug pull. He is not that God. He is a stronghold on the day of trouble. He knows intimately. He knows those who take refuge in Him. He knows them. That is a great comfort. You see, the gospel is good news. And maybe, like many people, you can come here often and you can ignore the news until stuff gets bad enough that it demands your attention, right? We're all careless about our lives until we are forced to pay attention. And what Nahum is getting at is that there is no escaping God. As much as our world tries to do it, as they try to get better and better at distraction, there is no escape from God. There is only escape into God, toward God, flee to God. For Nahum says in verse 8 and following, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end 
of the adversaries and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. And then very much like Psalm 2, Nahum asks in verse 9, what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Consider that. There is no resurrection or restoration of the wickedness of wickedness after the Lord judges it. That's why reincarnation is false. There is no way that Hitler is coming back. Stalin is not coming back. Castro is not coming back. Praise God. There is no rising up a second time for them after judgment. Verse 10. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. Again, sounds very much like Psalm 1. And then verse, verse 10 is referring to the way that God's judgment will actually saturate and overwhelm a person quickly. Like a stubble fire, like the drunk driver who blacks out and wraps the car around the pole. That's what wrath is going to be like. Psalm 7, verse 12. A psalm you know. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns on his own head and his own, on his own skull. His violence descends. You want to understand what's going on in the world? That's what's going on in the world. Violence descending on people's own heads. Even Psalm 1-7, as you know it, the wicked are like chaff scattered by the wind. The wind, the Hebrew word is the ruach is also referring to the Spirit. The Spirit is scattering the chaff in judgment. Nahum 1.11, as God speaks of Nineveh, he says, From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. It happened to Sennacherib. It was going to happen after this prophecy to Ashurbanipal. It happened. Turned this massive city, huge city, like, I mean, similar in size to the core of Calgary today. And this is back in the ancient world. And turned it into a ghost town. And then he says, and he kind of turns, as it were, to speak to the people of Judah. Because actually this is, again, a book of comfort for the people of Judah, even as it's a book of judgment on the Assyrians and the Ninevites. He says, Though I have afflicted you, Judah, 
I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. This is again a different kind of comfort. It's the comfort to believers. And Nahum echoes Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 says in verse 24, The Lord of hosts has has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be, and as I propose, so shall it stand. Isaiah 14, 25, That I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. We don't have a whole lot of modern slavery in Calgary here, but, but there's all kinds of bondage that everybody has experienced in different ways. Bondage to sin, trapped in a situation, and then to be freed from that slavery, to be, to be freed from that sin, to be freed from that situation is so liberating. And yet... For the wicked that will not run to God, the wrath of God remains upon him. Just like the cruel empire of Assyria, or cruel empires that have succeeded them down to our own day. When I worry about the politics in this world, all I have to think about is, oh yeah, Assyria. In a moment. Gonzo. Not these trajectories, oh we can forecast what's going to happen in five years. No, gone in a moment. Ghost town. Nahum then says in verse 14, The Lord has given commandment about you, namely Nineveh, no more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. And at that point then, the obligatory Johnny Cash reference, God's going to cut you down. You can listen to that on the way home if you don't know what I'm talking about. God's literally going to bury them. And he did it to Nineveh so that they were forgotten. It's It's only 150 years later and the Greeks passed through and nobody knows who built this stuff? Who, who was here? The locals, they don't know. Nobody wrote down. I don't know what happened to them. They're gone. The Greeks don't know. And it was thought to be, the Assyrians and Nineveh in particular, was thought to be a fairy tale until 1817. As the poet Byron put it, the widows of Asher are loud in their wail. And the idols are broke in the temple of Baal. And the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, hath melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. Thankfully though, as always, there is hope in this prophecy of judgment. It is the hope of the gospel. The comfort of the gospel is repeated one fifteen. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly 
cut off. Nahum is quoting from Isaiah 52 and verse 7, which of course is then quoted by Paul in Romans 10, 15. You see, the gospel, the good news, was the only hope for Judah, and it's the only hope for you. Not cleaning up your act, not not being religious. No, no, the gospel itself, fleeing to God, existentially, experientially, fleeing to Him, that is the only way. How can you have peace with God? Because he's avenging, he's going to avenge against you. How can you have peace with him? Well, it's got to believe the good news. Not merely giving mental assent to the correct facts about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but actually turning, turning away from your self gratifying, your self managing, your self oriented control of your life and running to God alone. I'm going to close by leaving you with a powerful example. And it's a testimony about what the good news can do. And it's actually from this era. You see, Nahum, he preached this prophecy about Assyria, about Nineveh, but it was directed towards the Judeans. And when he preached it, When he was preaching this, there was a king in Judah called Manasseh. And Manasseh was trying to outdo everybody before him in trying to be as pagan as possible in Judah among God's people. And maybe it was because of his lusts. Maybe it was because of his fears. Definitely because of his sinful heart. But Manasseh did wicked, wicked things. Not just privately, but publicly. He brought sexually immoral, demonic, cultish idolatry into the temple of God in Jerusalem, along with the practice of sacrificing children to false gods. And when you see that wickedness, but you see stuff that goes on today, you see how more barbaric we are than we actually like to admit. It says in 2 Kings 21, in verse 16, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides the sin that he had made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Sounds like one of the Assyrian kings filling blood throughout Jerusalem amongst God's people. That's how 2 Kings reports Manasseh's life, this wicked, evil king. 2 Chronicles adds a bit to this story, thankfully. 2 Chronicles 33, again talking about this same time. It says in 2 Chronicles 33, we find out that the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. So they 
Manasseh's the guy. They put a hook through his nose, a fancy one, and then drug him around. This king took him back to Babylon, part of the Assyrian Empire. And that's in 2 Chronicles 33.11. The pictures of the Assyrians doing this to Manasseh were carved artfully into the stone reliefs, and you can see them in the British Museum if, you, if we ever can travel to England again. Scholars argue, then, that Nahum's prophecy against Assyria had an effect because something happened. Something happened to Manasseh. 2 Chronicles 33.12 says this. Listen very closely. This is Manasseh. When he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. You see, Nahum is likely then the unnamed prophet, the unnamed seer in 2 Chronicles who spoke the word of God to Manasseh and Manasseh repented of his sins. Even Manasseh. Did this change the consequences of Manasseh's sins? All the stuff that he did in Jerusalem, all the consequences of that, it all still remained. But it changed whether or not Manasseh himself could stand before the Lord or not. See, this is a reminder that the wrath of God is real. Many people carry on their lives thinking that God does not see, that God does not know, that there is no God. But the wrath of God is real. And though it appears to be slow, He has an ability to make a nation or a person collapse in a moment. And this is the reminder then that only sinners deserving of wrath, only those are qualified to turn, turn to Jesus and be saved. It's only wrath-deserving sinners that are saved. If you don't think you deserve wrath, I guess you're not qualified, and I guess then you're damned. But if you think, yeah, I think I am, deserving of his wrath, then all you need to do is flee to him, not run away from him. Flee from the wrath to come, John the Baptist said. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is what each of you is charged with It's to lay yourself bare before God today, this awesome, terrifying God who is nevertheless good.
go to him and receive a hearty, warm welcome into his refuge. Don't delay. You don't know what tomorrow brings. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would cause us to be sobered before you, but also that you would give us the the sense of comfort, knowing that our sins are forgiven as we trust in Jesus Christ alone. O Lord, give us eyes to see and look upon Christ and trust in his shed blood for us even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.